0: This podcast is developed by Bridge Bio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions don't necessarily reflect the views and policy of Bridge BioPharma. Pharma. Now, we hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: Welcome to On Rare, a rare disease podcast produced by Bridge Bio, a biotech company that focuses on developing treatments for rare diseases. I'm your host, Mandy Rohrig, a member of the patient advocacy team at Bridge Bio, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, David Rintel, Head of Patient Advocacy. Today, David speaks with Cliff and Noreen, the loving parents of Dylan, who lives with an ultra-rare, fatal neurological condition called Canavan disease. But first, David will talk with Dr. Jenny LaFerrette to provide a little background and some information about what Canavan disease is. Hi, David.
2: Hi, Mandy. Hi, Mandy. I just want to say a couple of words before speaking to Jenny. You and I had a chance to meet Cliff and Noreen and their son Dylan because we went to their home to do some photography with our wonderful photographer, Chris Kurziter, and they're just lovely. It was such a pleasure hearing their story. It's interesting, it's moving, it's sometimes funny, and I can't wait to introduce them. First, I'm so happy to welcome my friend and colleague Jenny LaFerette to the podcast. Jenny is the vice president of clinical development of Aspa Therapeutics, and Aspa is working on a gene therapy for Canavan disease. Jenny is a very experienced, very kind, very lovely person who is a great resource. Hi, Jenny.
0: Hey, David. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. It's really a pleasure to be here.
2: So this is a podcast about rare diseases and among the rare diseases are conditions often called ultra rare because they occur so infrequently. And one of those is canavan disease. Most people have never heard about canavan disease, but of course, families who have a child affected by canavan know a lot about it. It's a very challenging Mm -hmm. condition. If you could just tell us what is canavan disease? How does a child develop canavan disease?
0: Okay, well, I'll speak first to just to your point about the ultra rarity, because the estimated incidence of Canavan disease is one in every one hundred thousand live births in the United States and the European Union. So, this is extremely extraordinarily rare, and there are many physicians who specialize in in treating these kinds of disorders who may never have seen a patient with Canavan disease. So, genes provide the instructions to the body to make particular proteins that our body needs. And if those instructions aren't correct, that particular protein cannot be made properly and the proper function of cells breaks down. And that's the case in Canavan disease. Canavan disease is a genetic disorder caused by abnormalities in genes that give instructions to make an important protein. That protein is called ASPA. Without the function of this ASPA protein, brain development cannot proceed normally.
2: So, Jenny, let me make sure that I understand correctly. Canavan disease is a disease caused by a gene not working correctly, and that gene in Canavan is called the ASPA gene, and the ASPA gene produces a protein when it's working correctly, Mm -hmm. and that protein is called The ASPA protein? Right. Okay.
0: An important element of brain development in which a protective layer called myelin is developed around nerve cells in order to protect them and to allow them to transmit signals properly. Without this myelination process, the brain is not able to grow, children aren't able to learn, they may not be able to move properly, learn how to communicate. Most of them will never be able to walk or sit independently. Their breathing ability can also be impaired, setting them up for lung infections. It's a truly devastating disease that requires a great deal of care. Ultimately, Canavan is a a fatal disorder.
2: So when the ASPA gene doesn't give the correct instructions, the ASPA protein can't work correctly. And that protein is involved in the creation of myelin, which is the fatty insulation around nerve cells. And without the myelin, then there are a number of neurological problems that occur. That,
0: that's correct. As nerve cells send electrical signals from one nerve cell to the other, myelin helps that electrical signal be sent more efficiently. So without myelin, the electrical signals are slower and the actual nerve cell itself is vulnerable to damage. So with those two problems, it is impossible for the brain to conduct its communication function properly and the nerves themselves are vulnerable to damage and death. And the result in canavan disease is a breakdown of the brain tissue and a degeneration of the brain.
2: Jenny, thank you. Why do some children get canavan? In other words, why does the aspogene not function in children with canavan and it does in other children? What causes this?
0: So there are two ways that a child can develop canavan disease one is to inherit one copy from each parent. So with the unfortunate roll of the dice, a given child might happen to inherit one abnormal aspagene copy from one parent and a second abnormal aspagene copy from the other parent and end up with Canavan disease. In some cases, however, a particular parent may not have an abnormal copy, but it's also possible for a new mistake to crop up that wasn't in one of his or her parents before.
2: So I think I understand that essentially canavan is an inherited disorder, but there are instances like the one we'll hear about. I think the term is spontaneous mutation or that the gene changes somewhere along the process, but it's not inherited. Am I right that it's mostly inherited? That's right.
0: That, that's correct. And typically each parent, because they have one working copy, they don't have any signs of the disease. But then when the child has no working copies, that's when the disease shows itself.
2: And that leads me to ask you about the occurrence of Canavan disease. Well, please correct me if I have this wrong, but I believe that Canavan used to be considered to be a disease found among Ashkenazi Jews, people of Jewish heritage whose history is through Eastern Europe, and that's just comparing them to Jews whose history is in, let's say, North Africa, who are called Sephardic Jews. That's correct, right? I mean, I I think... That
0: is correct. Historically, that was the population that seemed to be disproportionately affected. However, the longer that this has been studied, it's clear that it's not exclusively a disorder of folks of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. Individuals with Canavan disease have been identified worldwide in Asia, North and South America, Europe, Africa. Um, So it's kind of an equal opportunity disorder.
2: I think most families now whose child is diagnosed with Canavan disease have no connection to the Ashkenazi Jewish community. It demonstrates how our knowledge and our practices change about genetic disorders. Right. So, so Jenny, I know that you're working on an investigational gene therapy for Canavan, and I'm just going to take a shot at a very basic explanation of that which is the attempt to provide a working ASPA gene Mm -hmm. to a child with Canavan disease in the hopes that the ASPA gene will then operate normally, produce the ASPA protein, and the myelin Mm -hmm. will be protected.
0: That's absolutely the right concept, David. So basically, the intent is to provide the correct instructions to the cells who lack the proper ASPA blueprint, if you will, to then allow those cells to start making the ASPA protein and allow brain development function to proceed normally as it should have all along.
2: So Jenny, you have a lot of experience developing medicines, and most of that has been for diseases or conditions that affect many, many more people. And I wonder what it's like for you to be working, developing a treatment for such a tiny population. How is it different than for other types of conditions?
0: I think the the main driver is the tremendous need of individual families and individual children with a disorder. And because of the rarity of Canavan, may be easy to overlook from the standpoint of, where to focus one's efforts. But it's as important for us to address this horrible disease that may affect one in 100,000 children versus much more prevalent disorders, because each case is so impactful and so devastating. And so it becomes kind of a personal mission, I would say.
2: One of the challenges when a child is diagnosed with canavan disease is, A, the family has never heard of canavan disease. It's just so rare. their pediatric neurologist is unlikely to have seen a child who's had canavan disease. There's only one or two pediatric neurologists in the U.S., for example, that have seen more than one or possibly two children with canavan disease. So families really fall into a rabbit hole. Even the medical professionals don't know all that much about. Until they find their way to a specialist, it's, it's really you know, so tough for families when they learn they have a child with Kenovan.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Yes. Thank you, Jenny. Genetic disorders are very complicated. We're really grateful to you for your work to try to bring gene therapy to children with canavan.
0: Thank you so much, David. It's something that the whole ASPA team feels very passionately about, and we welcome this opportunity to share what we know and share the work that we're doing, so thank you for that.
2: I'm I'm so happy to welcome Noreen and Cliff. They are the parents of Dylan, who's 15 years old, living with Canavan disease. I've had the pleasure of meeting Noreen and Cliff in person and Dylan. uh, They are a lovely family. I still feel the warmth of our visit months later and we're really lucky to have them. Uh, Hi Noreen.
3: Hi David, how are you?
2: I'm doing well, thank you. And, And Cliff, how are you today? I'm well today, thanks David. So, canavan disease is a very, very rare condition. We're so interested in hearing your story and what it's like to be parents of a young man with canavan disease. So, I wonder if we could start at the very beginning, which I think is how Dylan came into your life.
3: So, um This is Noreen. Uh, 15 years ago, we adopted Dylan at birth. We're from New Jersey and um, Dylan was born in the state of Virginia. We got the call that he was uh, ready to arrive into the world and we were very excited and drove six hours. Was it six, Cliff, or five?
4: It was a good six.
3: It was a good six hours to Virginia to welcome our little guy. You know, we got to the hospital and we had this beautiful little boy. We were very excited and he had 10 fingers and 10 toes and he had his all, all his newborn screenings and everything checked out okay. And we were thrilled that he was gonna be a happy, healthy little boy. It took about two weeks because there's a lot of paperwork when you go through adoption that has to go through the courts. So we were in Virginia for two weeks with him staying at a hotel. We drove home with him. We were so excited to come home. We got home. And um, I fed him, and he started crying, crying uncontrollably, which we had never heard in you know in the first two weeks. So um, it it didn't you know it wasn't a fussy cry, it wasn't a hungry cry because I was feeding him. He didn't seem to have any sickness. He didn't have a runny nose or anything like that. And um, my father was there when we brought him home. And he said, Noreen, I don't know. That cry sounds like a pain cry. He said, I think you should call the doctor. This is our first night home. So um, so I called the doctor who we didn't meet in person, but we, we had a consultation visit with them before we uh, adopted Dylan. And he said, Noreen, because he's a newborn, and at this point, it's 8 o'clock at night. He said, at this point, because we haven't seen him, he goes, and he's a newborn, I think you need to go to the emergency room. <laughs> this is his first night home. <laughs> so we took him to the emergency room, and of course they thought, you know, oh, it's just it's just colic, nothing to worry about, and we came home. You know, I, I would say from the next day on, you know, he would cry uncontrollably, and that lasted, that lasted for about 18 months. <laughs> But in between that 18 months, you know, it was difficult trying to feed him. He didn't have a good uh, sucking reflex. But he was otherwise, besides the crying and the eating, he was okay. But the doctors were keeping a close eye on him. I guess at about five months, we took him for some of his regular vaccines.
4: Well, well, prior to that, Noor, they were actually following. They didn't like the way his head was growing. Yeah. It was very large for his, you know, being an infant. So they did a CT and it didn't show anything. And then, you know, what Noreen is leading up to is into five months, we got some of his immunization shots and he ended up having a seizure. So we brought him to the pediatrician and he had another one there. And she said, bring him to the hospital. Um, so we brought him to the hospital. His neurologist came in and said, I was following him for a large head and now he has seizures. He goes, they're related. And it's going to be my job to figure out why. And unbeknownst to us, when we were in the hospital, what well, we in there, Nora, like a week?
3: About a week, yeah.
4: They did a, a urine test, testing for NAA, and it came back positive for Canavan, but they didn't tell us. Um, we were discharged. They called us a week later, and they said, you know what? The test was a little diluted, which we know it wasn't. They just wanted a second urine test to confirm Canavan, because I guess the only way to confirm Canavan is NAA in your urine. Um, And both times it came back positive. So from that point, they sent us to a geneticist who didn't have a good bedside manner, may I say? Um, Her assistant came in. You can use
2: stronger language, Cliff, if you wish.
4: Oh, I'll I'll build up to that, David. (laughs) Um, Her assistant comes in and says, oh, yes, Canavan. And she starts talking about, it's just like CF, both parents have to have it, it's 50-50 shot. And we're like, he's adopted, that doesn't apply to us. So the geneticist comes in, she hands us two pieces of paper, some support groups and says, well, maybe he'll make it to 10. That was basically it. She examined him and you know, we left their bone or eyes out.
3: Yeah, that was when they were sending us to the geneticist, I thought, I knew there would be a problem But because I was having so much difficulty feeding him, I figured it was, you know, a feeding problem. Maybe something was wrong with his intestines. You know, I was concerned about that, but I wasn't overly concerned. I'm like, you know, there's so many medical advances in this world, you know, we'll be able to fix it. And then even when she said it's Canavan disease, I thought, oh, I never heard of it. Maybe it's not that bad. And um, when she started explaining it, you know, we both lost it. You know, she wasn't very good with her words, and we wound up just losing it yeah. and running out of there. <laughs> so that was that was a difficult day, a very difficult day. And um, you know, when we got home, we called our family, our friends. We told everyone, but it was we were still pretty much in shock. Cliff, if you'll agree with me or not, I would say it took us a good two years to ac- oh. Not accept the diagnosis, but to realize, okay, we could handle this. We're gonna we're gonna be able to move forward. It took us a good two mm-hmm. years.
4: And, and during those two years, it wasn't just like we're sitting home with Dylan. You know, we're we'll running to the doctor every week for this, for that. We ended up getting his first feeding tube put in at a year and a half. Um, and in between this, you know, Noreen mentioned before, he was crying probably eight to twelve hours a day. He was only sleeping like four to five. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we they said, you know we're gonna put in a feeding tube because we couldn't get you know any feed into him. We're like, okay, they said, don't be surprised if you know he'll sleep a good six to eight hours. And we're, we're like, yeah, right. We put the feeding tube in, came home first night, he slept like eight hours. and we literally had to go in and like, is he okay? because we were like, holy crap, Like they were right about something. So that was probably probably the best thing we did for him early on in life was to get that feeding tube because he was burning more calories trying to suck the bottle than he was taken in. So it wasn't, you know, it, it just wasn't working.
2: So I just want to go back uh, to a couple of things that you said. So first of all, Dylan started crying a lot at two weeks old, either it was New Jersey or it was something else. Now
4: once we crossed that Jersey state line, he started crying. <laughs> I
2: think it was something else. But I think that families who have a child with canavan disease often talk about irritability and crying, and that can last a very long time. And of course, a pediatrician will expect something relatively normal first, but this is something that didn't go away.
4: Yeah, and, and we also have to pay uh neurologist a good amount of respect because he put two and two together. He actually had a canavan kid when he was practicing in Brooklyn. And that's why he tested for it because most people wouldn't even know to test for it. And you know, Dr. Eichler, I had a conversation with him at one of the NTSAD Mm -hmm. conferences and he said, praise to your neurologist for even doing that. Mm -hmm. They don't test for it because nobody knows what it is and it's so obscure. Uh, So by knowing that we can get on a path you know, just to keep them happy and,
2: and going. It gives you some kind of a, it gives you some clues or guidance about how to keep him as healthy as possible and as comfortable as possible. So knowing the diagnosis is crucial. And yes, that neurologist was on his toes. And most pediatric neurologists probably never, ever encounter a child with Canavan to be able to recognize it like that. The next thing that you talked about was uh, the geneticists, you know, they're ready to identify each of you as carriers. I wonder if they did follow up on that were his birth parents carriers because Canavan disease is a genetic condition. Yes.
4: So both both of his birth parents were tested and they came back non-carriers to Canavan. So at the time we were seeing Dr. Kolodny had a big lab at NYU for testing for genetic diseases and his lab tested over and over again Dylan's blood work and they even took a tissue sample and they were never able to find the mutation. So what his lab and he thought was that it was a spontaneous mutation Hmm. since both birth parents were not carriers of Canavan.
3: A a unique situation, yeah. Yeah.
2: So Dylan did not inherit this from his birth parents. It was a mutation that occurs like sometimes occur just on its own but let's just mark that Canavan itself is extremely rare. People talk about it being one in 100,000 live births, but it's probably a smaller number than that. And the children with Canavan who have a spontaneous mutation, i.e. a change in a gene that just happens on its own is much, much smaller, pretty rare among this very rare population, so. I think uh, the chance is very small, but this is, uh, this is Dylan. So I think before I interrupted, you were talking about both kind of not really facing Canavan disease head on during the first two years after diagnosis, but also being attentive to his health and his comfort. And that's when the feeding tube was put in place, which really helped him sleep through the night and helped him get nutrition. I wonder what else through the first couple of years. What what else did you notice from five months, let's say, to two years?
3: Um, you know, as we said before, he was he was very irritable. He had periods of where he was calm, but um, they were very short lived. Even though emotionally, it took us, you know, two years to get over this. We were, I would say, you know, very robotic. We were trying to do everything to make him better. You know, we had our pediatrician, we found a pulmonologist, we found a gastronologist, we, we had our neurologist. So we were just going from doctor appointment to doctor appointment to doctor appointment to see how we could make him comfortable. We didn't know if this crying was gonna last forever. And it really, really broke our hearts that he wasn't feeling comfortable or happy. That was one of the hardest things. And I think that's why it took us so long Because we just wanted him to be comfortable. And he clearly was not comfortable. He did like motion, you know, taking him for walks, helped ease his crying most of the time, but not all of the time. I had every type of um, (laughs) baby gadget, bouncy seats, and, you know, all of this stuff. But he didn't take to any of it until after he was comfortable from the feeding tube.
2: So a lot of it. Had to do with his not getting enough nourishment and not having the calories or whatever else he needed
3: that's what we feel yeah the poor guy was just whatever yeah. calories yeah. he was getting he was literally crying them out <laughs> because to cry and it wasn't just a cry it was a scream that burns calories oh. Oh. he wasn't happy so when we finally got that feeding tube mm-hmm. so many perspectives changed for him for us and we felt like we can move on now
2: so I have to say that um, the picture of Dylan being so uncomfortable and so irritable uh, is so different with how he is now. And I'm not trying to jump to how he is now, but we were introduced mm-hmm. by uh, Diana Pangonis of National tay and Allied Disorders Association. Mm-hmm. And what she said was, you will love Dylan's infectious smile. So, um, and I think Dylan is known for his smile. So thinking about him being so uncomfortable unhappy and it's hard to hear i'm glad you addressed it
3: yes yes i think it's difficult for every parent because well you know as i always thought the most fundamental thing you have to do for your child is feed them and we couldn't feed before the feeding tube we could barely feed Mm. him that almost makes you feel like a failure for your child but once he got that feeding tube, it, everything changed. He yes, became more happy, more comfortable. He showed us his true personality, which is a funny, happy little boy who's mischievous and, and likes silly and crazy things. He was able to develop therapy with learning mm-hmm. things. That brightened our world. It really did.
2: So Cliff and Nureen, I've had the honor of meeting a number of families with a child or a family member with canavan disease. And they didn't have this very astute neurologist. They noticed that their child was not developing in the way that children of a similar age were developing, even though you knew that Dylan had canavan disease.
3: I didn't know it was canavan disease, but I did know something was wrong. I was hoping, it, you know, of course, as a parent, you're hoping it's nothing too serious, but when we couldn't feed him and he was, you know, most babies, when you give them a bottle, that's a comfort, they're quiet. When we gave him a bottle, he screamed bloody murder, almost like we were torturing him. That was the biggest developmental thing I saw. And then I noticed, um, you know, when he smiled, it was more of an open mouth smile, not a side to, you know, a side to side smile. Which, of course, I didn't know it at the time um, because of the muscle Mm -hmm. tone. They don't smile like traditionally, like most people smile. It was an open the mouth smile. He wasn't able to really, um, you know, roll over um, or lift his head up. So, those were some other signs, but I did notice them, but the feeding was more paramount. And that was what I was really, really concerned about.
2: Your main concern was his emotions and his well-being, and that was so prominent. Cliff, please add to this. So when you were able to change his uh, nutrition through the feeding tube, he was about two. So where was he developmentally?
4: Oh, he never tried to walk or crawl or turn. Um, He was just pretty much immobile from early on. Aside from crying, he really didn't do anything else you know, physically. So we knew obviously uh, something was wrong. At three, we started early intervention. And I really do think all these therapies from early on, the PT, the OT um, and, and speech. uh, Did we have speech at the time, Nora?
3: We did. Yes.
4: All the therapies early on, I think really helped mold where he is now as a happy, outgoing, great personality kid. He's not stiff, you can move him around. He does a little rolling now with his PT just from side to side once in a while. But having the therapies early on for not just a child with Canavan disease, but any child that has a white matter disease really, I think, helped shape the person that he is today at 15. And also having a good support system in, in terms of doctors. You gotta have a good doctor that you can trust. A lot of doctors told us different things, but we didn't. We didn't necessarily do what they said. Yeah. You know, we liked the doctor that said, "Well, what do you think?" Because we know them. You know, every Canavan kid is different, as as you know, David, because you've met many. Um, so, having a good support team, like Noreen said, a good pediatrician, neurologist, pulmonologist, a GI doctor, it, it is key and paramount to having these mm-hmm. kids get a good purpose in life. You know, enjoy while they're here. Absolutely. You know, Noreen can tell she's on, you know, Facebook with the Canavan group. And people just going, doing this test, doing this procedure. Why is it going to help is the bottom line. We're not going to put, we would never put Dylan through something if we didn't think it would help him. And I think a lot of these parents jump, especially, you know, Dylan also Mm -hmm. has two dislocated hips. You know, we went to see a a specialist in New York. Yeah, let's do surgery. But we were like, why? Mm -hmm. In probably a year or two, they're going to pop out. He's not going to walk. So, why would we put him through it?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Um, unless we had to.
2: So, the key really is to find healthcare providers who see you as partners and collaborators and as the experts that you are and to make decisions together rather than for them to say, oh, yeah, we're going to do this test or this procedure or whatever, but to say, well, what do you think? You're with Dylan many, many hours of the day, you know him best. The healthcare providers get a much smaller sample of time and experience with him. So I'm so pleased to hear that you found physicians who listen to you. That just seems so important.
4: And we actually have the cell phones of a lot of our doctors that just say, text us, you know, if there's anything. Because they know we're not going to text them that Dylan has, a, you know, a, a stub toe. <laughs> you know, we're only going to reach out to them that, you know, when it's when it's dire or on our way to the hospital to give them a heads up yeah
2: yeah so you also learned that the various forms of therapies physical therapy occupational therapy etc really make a difference i wonder if you could just share some of the benefits that you've seen from that kind of treatment for him
3: i'd have to say you know and i've said this many times before it keeps his um body moving and his mind evolving i think it's crucial and vital for these children to have therapies they are compromised to begin with you know physically and developmentally cognitively um and if that's not something you work on they're not going to get better it's going to get worse so we were very pro you know whatever we could do um to keep him enjoying life and comfortable is most important to us You know we've seen it happen you know we had the the pandemic where everything stopped we even had to stop his therapies for a while during the pandemic and we saw the difference we saw the difference and it wasn't good you know i can't begin to tell you how important physical therapy occupational therapy we even have a teacher for him and you know a lot of people have said why do you have a teacher She reads to him. She does crafts with him. They study just like any other kid that we're studying about the world and we're studying about animals. And and he soaks all that up. He really enjoys it. And I do have to tell you, Cliff, and correct me if I'm wrong, from three to about seven, Dylan was saying some words. He He was. um, And I did everything uh, short of strapping a a video camera on my head to try and capture the moment. (laughs) Um I never did but he went for I guess a good year saying mom at least once or twice a day. Cliff always called him buddy.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So when Cliff would come in from work at night, one time Dylan looked up at him and he was like, "Bud." We called him <laughs> Bud. So for anyone that's not practicing therapies with these kids and thinks it may not work. It works. Mm. It works. Mm.
4: And, and what also has helped in the recent years since the pandemic, and you saw when you were at our house, David, mm-hmm. is the Toby Dynavox, which is an eye-scanning machine. And Dylan can go into different programs, answer yes or no, pick what day of the week. Um, and he is a jokester because with his teacher, Sue, she'll say what day it is, and he'll pick every day but the day. But he's, he's laughing, and sometimes <laughs> he doesn't do anything. So then we would start talking to the therapists, um, and then, of course, we're not paying attention to. It, so, so then he'll start answering all the questions. Uh, and a funny story with his speech therapist, um, he wouldn't do anything for her, and they were in one program and she said, Dylan, you're killing me. He closed out at that program, opened another one and said good. <laughs> so it, 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 is it the teenage years? He, he is a wise ass,
2: you know And it sounds like keeping Dylan stimulated physically, and mentally, uh, has really uh, provided benefits. Yes. I'm, I'm so yes. glad that at least for a time he was able to, to call you by his name for you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, so I, I really appreciated hearing about uh, Dylan's sense of humor. We had a visit at which time Cliff was working hard to get Dylan to smile because we came with a photographer. And Cliff, you had some incredible ways of Talking to Dylan to kind of get a rise out of him, so I wonder if I can embarrass you to uh, to repeat some of those things for us. Uh, he
4: loves curse words. Yeah, holy holy shits, a good one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, anything that rhymes, loud song, loud bangs. He's a typical you know fifteen year old boy that has canavan disease. You know anything you know the curse words are a big one anything that rhymes holy crap just really anything and i think after 10 minutes at our house david started joining in with the uh, <laughs> with the uh words that will make dylan smile and laugh and open his eyes for the camera you know so you, you do what you got to do as a parent you know yeah, absolutely and, and that's absolutely. that's the bottom line whether a typical kid or absolutely. a you know handicapped uh, child you just do what makes him yeah. laugh and if it is saying yeah. holy shit then
2: it is what yeah. it is and that does get a rise out of him and some very complex uh, rhymes that uh they got a rise out of me too cliff yeah. so. so we've talked a lot about your efforts to make sure that dylan has a comfortable and happy life and you know you've done an incredible job at that i guess i'd like to ask you about your lives Like other parents who have a child with a significant disability, you don't just call a babysitter if you want to go out to the movies. So I guess I would start with what is a typical day like in terms of who's coming to the house? And I know both of you work, so how do you manage that? And what are your lives like in terms of coverage for Dylan? Because he needs someone with him all the time, am I right?
3: Yeah, it's um I guess for anyone that has a um a family member, a child, a parent that has, you know, multiple medical needs, it's difficult. Getting out, even just a night out for dinner, yeah. those times are far and few between. Wow. Trying to even get away for twenty four to forty eight hours is nearly impossible. <laughs> I'll tell you something my sister uh, said to me that really was pretty powerful. Cliff and I, for the first time, were able to get away for three days last year, which we haven't been able to do in 15 years. We were just going down to a... uh, beach resort here in New Jersey. It's about two or three hours away. We were meeting up with my family and this is, you know, after COVID. So we hadn't seen anyone in a while and it was going to be a real special time. Of course, I wanted to bring Dylan. However, you know, with COVID still around, I'm not comfortable bringing him around crowds. So Cliff and I said, okay, it's time. We need a break. So we went down. Dylan stayed here with the nursing It was very hectic leaving because you have to make sure you have coverage and even backup coverage. Mm -hmm. If one of the nurses doesn't show up, we can't just leave Dylan alone. So I think there were three shifts a day, five different nurses. And this is what my sister said. You know, you and Cliff are going away for three days. Do you realize it takes five to seven people to cover what you do? (laughs) Honestly, I never thought of it like that. But you know what? It's very true. This is what is required just to get away for a short time.
4: So I, I do have to say we do have nursing 16 hours a day. Uh, we're approved for seven days a week, but ha, ha, ha on the weekends. You know, we do have a day shift nurse from eight to four and night nursing from 10 to six or 11 to seven, depending on which nurse is covering. So really to get the other shifts filled in is a lot harder than you think because of the home healthcare nursing. It's just, it's abysmal because for what they pay, you know, these big hospitals, Mm -hmm. they offer benefits and everything. So Mm -hmm. who wants to get into home care? But, you know, we have a solid crew that's been with us for a while and, You know, going back Mm -hmm. way back when we first started nursing, it was tough because you have somebody you don't know in your house, you know. During the day, you're there, but at night, you're sleeping. To get to a comfort level, you know, it it took a little bit, but our nurses have been with us a while now, and they become part of the family, at least the good ones. So it it is tough. And during the school year, he gets a teacher. Who's amazing five mm-hmm. days a week. He gets PT, OT, and um, speech three days a week. And like we said before, like Noreen mentioned, these these all things keep him moving and cognitively, you know, aware. Yeah. But it is it is tough. And uh, Noreen mentioned all of his equipment. You know, he's on the feeding tube, right? He gets a nebulizer treatment three times a day. He gets a, a vest treatment three times a day. He gets deep suctioning. Um, we have a cough assist. You know, it's you walk into Dylan's room. It's basically a hospital room without a couple different yeah. devices. That's that's the reality.
2: And just to clarify, Cliff, the nebulizer and uh, that other equipment is a lot about his respiratory system, right?
4: Yeah, his his two biggest things are. GI gaining weight which we're finally mm-hmm. on a good road and respiratory. You know, I'll say it again, David as you met other kids, yeah. some kids don't have respiratory issues with Catavan. Every kid or every child is different. You know, yeah. Dylan's had, you know, yeah. a number of seizures in years. Some kids that we know yeah. didn't have seizures. So
2: yeah. every child was different with this disease. Yeah. Um, My understanding is that our respiratory system is designed for people walking upright on their feet. And then if you're not doing that, you're vulnerable. Actually, a number of systems don't work in the same way if you're not ambulatory. So,
3: um, That's true. Dylan also has asthma, so that adds to it as well. He just seems to be more compromised in that area.
2: Hmm. Let me just pause and just say how much I appreciate what you've shared with us today. And I want to ask, a tough question you were told initially at his diagnosis that dylan would live until 10 beaten that by 50 percent exactly already i think the care that you've provided you you are monitoring his health very very carefully and he's getting everything that he needs but i guess i feel like it needs to be asked about what do you see happening in the future what do you what do you expect what do you worry about what do you hope for
3: i i almost don't think about the future <laughs> with Dylan, you know, I think with diseases like this, you have to live day by day and just be happy that the day arrived and everything is going well. Um, you have to live for the day. Of course, yes, I think of the future, but I think if I were to think about it too much, it's just going to be a lot of worry and unneeded stress. As a matter of fact, Dylan is in ninth grade. Um, I got a notice this year from the school and they said, okay, you have to start planning for when he's 18, when he's going to opt out of the system. When I got that email, I was like, you know, I, I cried, but at the same time, it was almost a happy cry too. I never thought I'd get an email like that when we're going to talk about when Dylan is 18 and what are the next steps to do after yeah. that. So it's it's a, it's surreal. You can look at it from a very happy standpoint thinking, wow, we never thought we'd be seeing 18. And to another point, I hope he makes it. So for me, it's a balance and just uh, mm-hmm. taking it day by day. That's all I can do. How about you, Cliff?
4: I mean, just enjoying, you know, him for who he is now, the happy kid that we have. We know what the future brings, but we try not to think about it. We focus on what we have now with him and the good times. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, I can say as a witness that there's a tremendous amount of love in your house coming from each of you. Well, thank you. There's nothing more important in life than love. Once again, you have blown me away and Really appreciate your participating and sharing your stories with us. It's, I hope it helps families soon after a diagnosis of one of their children, and it's just another example of how to live well, even though the cards you were dealt were not ideal. As um, Robert Louis Stevenson said, "It's not the cards you're dealt, but how you play your hand."
3: Thank you. And David, thank you um, for everything you're doing for Canavan Disease. I mean, we are so thrilled watching these younger children have hope. I can't tell you how much that means to us.
1: I'm just so incredibly grateful to see and listen to Cliff and Noreen talk about Dylan again. It's truly so heartwarming to hear their story and to hear how Dylan's doing. When I listen to them again, it uh, strikes me the importance and the need for respite care for parents of children with these complex medical needs. They have help when they need help. However, getting used to having someone in your home nearly all day, every day and at night when you're sleeping can be really challenging. And uh, their story really illustrates the importance and the the need of qualified caregivers for for kiddos like Dylan. They're a remarkable couple and amazing family. And I just feel truly blessed to get to meet them and then get to know them even more through this podcast.
2: You know, their story is not usual most children with canavan disease are born to two parents who learn at the birth of their child that they're both carriers of canavan disease of course dylan was adopted any adoption has some challenges it's a reminder that when any child is born, we don't really know what to expect. But early on, they started to notice there were some differences, and I was really impressed that Noreen's father was helpful to them to make sure they, they sought medical attention. You know, having a child with significant disability is is just really very trying. Somehow Cliff and Noreen have transformed the arrival of Dylan as a member of their family into a a thing of beauty. They have organized their lives around him in a way that seems to make them all happy. Even though they don't get to go out on dates, they don't go on their own to visit friends, they need to have qualified carers if they ever leave. It's a big challenge. But uh, when you enter their home, and when you listen to them, there's no sense that they are complaining or that they're suffering. There's only the sense that they have a home full of love.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you definitely hear joy. But we also heard Noreen speak towards that essential need to take it day by day because things can change so quickly. And she spoke about the hope that she has.
2: Uh, Mandy, I think that parents who have a child with Canavan have to face the question of how long their lives will be. And that's in addition to the other challenges of caring for children who are very disabled. And I think Cliff and Noreen are just wonderful examples of parents. They're loving, they accept Dylan for who he is. They know how to have fun with him. They understand what makes him tick and what makes him happy. So kudos to them. And they could be an inspiration to any parents. What a wonderful opportunity to get to know them.
1: Thank you, David. Thank you, Dr. LaFerrette, for helping us to understand the science of Canavan disease. But most importantly, thank you so much to Cliff and Noreen for speaking so honestly and with such poise and joy and love. A very special thanks to our producer, Amy Brooks. And to learn more about Canavan disease, please visit the Canavan Foundation, Canavan Research Illinois, or the National Tay-Sachs and Allied Diseases Association, better known as NTSAD. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd really appreciate your support by rating and most of all, subscribing. I'm Mandy Rorick. Thank you for being with us today. Please join us for our next conversation on Rare.